Week seven, righteous, not immune. I'll give you a quick recap, as I always do, through the story so that everyone is up to date. And it's a lot to get up to date, so I'm going to try to do this as quick as I can. We started off, we realized that the first king of Israel, Saul, was being continually disobedient to God. And God spoke through a prophet named Samuel and said, it's time to replace him. I want you to go to a man named Jesse in Bethlehem. He's going to have a bunch of sons, and one of them is going to be the future king. So Samuel goes to Jesse in Bethlehem, looks at all the sons, and they were all good-looking, strong men who seemed fully capable to be king. But God said, no, Samuel, don't look on the outside, look on the inside. So he calls, he looks at all the sons, and, and Jesse says, I've got one more if you want to see him. He's in, the, he's in the fields, he's a shepherd boy. He brings him in, and Samuel says, that's the man, that's the future king. So David gets anointed as king. And one thing we talked about, and I think that this is just something we should remind ourselves every week, that anointing does not mean automatic. There are so many times where we get anointed to do something, and we get discouraged if we don't walk into the anointing automatically. David was anointed as king, but it would be years and years and years before he ever walked into that position. In fact, when he was anointed as king, the very next step was going back to being a shepherd, a dirty job, a tiring job, a 24-hour, seven-day elite job, fighting off bears, fighting off lions. And we found out that David learned how to fight lions and bears with his bare hands. He would grab them by the jaw, put them to the ground, beat him with a club, not knowing that he was preparing to face this giant called Goliath, who the Israelites were coming up against him, representing the Philistines, okay? In the midst of all this, probably out in the fields, David was learning to play an instrument very well, a harp. In fact, David was the best musician in the land. So when King's, King Saul was so disobedient to God, God sent a tormenting spirit on Saul. And we talked about last week how the, the way that works is the, the simple fact of this. When you're in God and obeying God, you have favor, but the, when you become in, engaged in a lifestyle of disobedience, favor leaves, and sometimes a tormenting spirit will come in. The only way out of it is to get obedient, but Saul was at the place where he was just totally disobedient, and he didn't care it was going to be his way or the highway. The only way that this tormenting spirit could soothe him was if he had music playing. So he goes to his guys, and he says, I want y'all to find the best musician in the land, and it happened to be the shepherd boy, David, who was anointed as king, and Saul didn't even know it. So David comes into the courts, and every time he plays his harps, Saul's, Saul's uh, spirit is calm, and he says, wow, this kid is awesome. Keep bringing him here to me. So one day Saul is bringing his Israelite army against the Philistines, and there's this giant that's taunting them, and he's saying, what do you got? You ain't got nothing. If I defeat you, you got to be my slaves, but if you defeat me, I'll be your slaves. So the whole army, including Saul, they were all scared of one giant. And they were so scared of him that they were starting to retreat. And one day Jesse uh, looked at David and said, David, you've got brothers at the front line of this war and they're hungry. Could you please bring them some bread and some cheese? And David didn't say, no, they hate me. David didn't say, no, they despise me. He just said, yes, sir. And he went and he served bread and cheese to his brothers. He was being obedient and faithful in small things. There are so many times in life where we don't like to be faithful in the things that don't promote us, but God 
God says, be faithful in the things that don't promote you and it will put you in line with the place of your promotion. So David gets to the front line of this army and he's bringing bread to his brothers and cheese to his brothers and all of a sudden he starts hearing this taunt of this Goliath dude and he looks at them and he says, who the heck is this guy that he can defy the Lord's armies? And he looks at them and says, are any of you going to do I'll do it. And then he finds out that, that the Saul made a promise. Whoever defeats this giant, you get a wife and you get free taxes. Taxes, And David's like, sign me up. I'll go for that. So he, 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 he takes it and he takes on the challenge. He defeats Goliath, we find out, not with armor and not with spears, but he just takes a slingshot with five stones. He was coming prepared to the battle. He was going to do whatever he needed to do. So he slings the stone at Goliath. Goliath falls down. He takes Goliath's sword. He cuts Goliath's head off. And then they, 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 they had such favor in the land. David started winning all these battles, and Saul loved David so much that he said, David, I want you to live with me. You're no longer going back to the fields of the shepherd. In, in just a matter of years, from teenage years, to probably early 20s, he has gone from a shepherd boy to a commander of an army who was the best musician of the land living in a palace. That's a, that's, that's a lot. I didn't even look at my notes for that. Amen. So he gets to the palace and all of a sudden all these women start coming out and singing praises. And they start saying, Saul, you've killed thousands and David, you killed ten thousands. Saul didn't like the fact that this boy was getting more credit than he was. So a spirit of jealousy started to rise up. And when jealousy rises up in people, people become evil. They will do things that promote themselves and they don't care what it will do to anyone else. So when this jealousy spirit started coming up, it started, he started having this tormenting spirit again. And this time, David came to play the harp. And instead of Saul being calm, he picked up a spear and he tried to kill the boy that just a day ago, he said, come live with me because you're favored and I love you and you're awesome. So David is now escaping multiple assassination attempts from King Saul. Because every time King Saul gets around David, he's jealous and he tries to kill him. And then he tries to use the promise of the wife against him. He says, I'm going to give you your wife if you'll go defeat this next army, this next garrison, this next troop. And he says, all right, I'll go defeat the troop. Saul's real uh, tactic is he's hoping that David gets killed in the battle. He's using the promise to Saul's advantage, trying to get David killed. The thing about David is he has such favor with God that no matter how big the battle is, he's winning. And I'm here to declare to you, when you walk in favor with God, it doesn't matter how big the battle is, it doesn't matter what you're not equipped with, you are going to walk in victory. So David is going to these battles, he keeps winning, and, and, and Saul starts to become more fearful of David because he's like, oh my gosh, this kid has such favor on him, and I have None. So Saul and his army are getting tired of David. They're chasing David to, 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 to where David went. David goes back to the prophet Samuel at this place called Ramah, and his, his wife helps him to escape there. Um, and, and Saul comes in to his daughter's house looking for the dude that married his daughter, his wife, because David won the battle. So David got the wife. David got the daughter of King Saul. And King Saul's like, where is David? Where is he at? And she lies and, 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 
and, and, and, and convinces Saul that he, he, he's in the, the bed and they go and look and he's not there. So Saul gets full of rage. He goes to Samuel. And then when the enemies and Saul are on the way to go find David, they fall out on the road there and they start prophesying into David's advantage. The enemy starts prophesying about how great uh, and, and where David is going in the middle of this. That's how, that's how much protection was around David because David was not about himself. David was not trying to become king. David was not trying to get any rec recognition. David was just trying to serve Saul. Now, you've got to think where David's at. Winning battles, defeating giants. Do you really think he was scared of Saul? He only had one thing. He, he knew that God said, I want you to serve the king. David wasn't trying to kill him. David wasn't trying to retaliate. He was just trying to serve him. So he kept escaping and, and, and kept getting out of the assassination attempts because he had one call, serve the king. And there are so many times where we get so frustrated in life because we're called to serve people that we don't like. We're called to serve people that want to do bad to you, that want to pull the rug out from under you, and we think, God, deliver me. God, move me on. And God's like, I don't want to deliver you because you still got some growing to do. David had to learn absolute humility in serving a leader that wanted to take him out. And there's so many of us that pray, God, get me out of this battle. And we talked about last week how maybe it's not God, get me out of the battle, but God, would you show me how to fight the battle? Sometimes we have to humble ourselves and realize it's not about being delivered from the battle. It's more about getting in this place where we realize the battle is teaching us something. And if there's victory in Jesus, what the heck am I worried about? Because every time David had a battle, when he won, it was promotion. Yet we pray, God, promote me without me having to struggle. But your struggle is the, is the schooling for the next promotion. This is a whole sermon already. I ain't gotten my notes yet. So this is where we're at. We're at this place in the story where David is making Jonathan, King Saul's son, more and more aware of what the issue is. Jonathan has made a covenant with David at this point. Jonathan is the prince. He is destined for the throne. But he puts his robes on David and he gives David favor and he realizes this is the one that God wants to take my father's throne. He's, he, Jonathan has every right to take the throne one day. David, Jonathan is royalty. But there's something about David that he saw that was more qualified to take that throne than him. And he saw they had the favor of God on him. So he humbly said, I'm making a covenant with you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor you and I'm going to be with you till the end. So we're at this place where David is starting to make Jonathan a little more aware about what's going on, that Saul's efforts are growing more and more to kill David. So we're starting out tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. David now fled from Naoth and Ramah and found Jonathan. What have I done? He exclaimed. What is my crime? How have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me? There are so many times in life where we feel as if everything is against us for no reason whatsoever. Have you ever been there? Because it becomes draining. We start to ask questions. What have I done to deserve this? What have I done, God, that someone is trying to take me out? What have I done that I deserve to go through this battle? 
What have I done to deserve? God, what have I done? This is where David's at. What have I done? I play the harp when he's being tormented and I soothe him and he tries to kill me. What have I done? I haven't tried to take his throne, God. I've served you. What, Jonathan, what have I done that your father hates me so much that he's trying to kill me? You may be righteous and anointed, but you are not immune from corrupt people trying to take advantage of you. And it does not matter how deep in a relationship with God you get, you never get immunity from people doing that. And we teach this false teaching that if you just go deeper with God, then you won't have struggle. But the fact of the matter is, it's the complete opposite. You get deeper and deeper and deeper, and and, and we start to see people trying to take advantage of us, people trying to cheat us, people trying to scam us, people trying to take advantage of your joy, take advantage of your humility. People will always try to take advantage of your humility. And then pride steps in and we say, I ain't going to let no one walk over me. But that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He allowed the Roman Empire to walk over him so that, we, so, that, so that he would die, so that we would come alive. Yet when someone walks over us, pride goes up and says, well, I'm just not having that because I'm too good. But you're not too good. If anything, let me take the beating, let me take the harassment so that my God gets glory and my pride doesn't. I'm going to be humble and I'm going to let you take advantage of me however you want because all I'm trying to do is make sure that you, good sir, that's weird, you, sir, are going to be blessed. And I hear that all the time from people. Well, Kyle, they're taking advantage of you. Good. Because my God will bless me so much that I have enough to be taken advantage of. So take it. You ain't that sly. I know what's going on. I don't care if you take advantage of me. And David's like, what's going on? We build up believing in God as if we automatically get favor in everything. And you do get favor. But favor doesn't make you immune from wicked people trying their best to take you out. Saul's position is threatened. David has this incredible favor. And all Saul is obsessed with is murdering the man who brought him victory in battles, who built him up, and who got him out of the clutches of an enemy, who soothes him whenever he has a torment, and all Saul wants to do is kill him. And we build up this idea that we're immune from wicked people. But we're not. A very difficult passage to swallow is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 4 we're going to read. Check it out. This too I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone. Whether you're righteous or you're wicked, you're good or you're bad, you're clean or you're unclean, religious or irreligious, good people receive the same treatment as sinners. And people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course where they have no hope. There's nothing ahead but death anyway. There is hope only for the living, as they say it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Skipping to verses 11 and 12. They, I have observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race. 
The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry. The skillful are not unnecessarily wealthy. Those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. People can never predict when hard times might come, like a fish in a net or birds in a trap. People are caught by sudden tragedy. See, we don't like that, those scriptures. Think about what the scripture just said. When it comes down to it, someone who worships Satan may go further in life than you. Someone who practices witchcraft may have wealth that you never get, even though you've done everything right. We all have the same destiny. We all have the same chance. We all have the same probability of tragedy. The fact that we are of God does not make us immune from bad situations. The fact that we're of God does not make us immune that stuff may happen that is not looking like the favor of God. You may be in right standing with God because of what Jesus has done for you, but it does not make you immune. And the worst thing we can do as believers is to live carelessly depending on favor and depending on this idea of, well, God will take care of it. What we need to do as believers is not become these people who are just saying, God's going to get me out. We should be comforted in that truth, but we don't manage our lives as if God's just going to pull us out himself. We manage our lives in the idea that God has given us the authority on this earth to manage our lives. Don't depend on God to get you out of debt. Don't pray for years, God, deliver me. Start paying it off. Start getting things right. Don't wait for years to God, God, would you please get my marriage right? God, would you please make my work right? You want to make your work right? Suck up to your boss and humble yourself and bring him coffee in the morning, even though you don't like him. It can't always be, God, will you, God, will you, God, will you, God, will you. He has given you the ability and the mind and the talent to manage your life. Management is about you managing everything you are under your values. Your values are now of this book. So you are like a David, and you say, even though they may keep trying to kill me, I am going to serve in my humility because I want to be light in their darkness. And I believe in that truth. I may have bad card after bad card after bad card, but I'm going to rest in the assurance that God will take care of me. But even if I don't see the evidence, I'm going to manage it under my authority. I don't need God to, 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 to tell me to be good to someone when he wants me to do it. I'm good to everyone no matter what, whether or not the Holy Spirit talks to me or not. You don't wait on the Holy Spirit to tell you to be nice to someone. You always be nice. Is this making sense? Because we're not immune. We don't get this like umbrella over us that makes us somehow more lucky than others because we're of God. We all have the same chance because we are all in a fallen world. Your salvation does not take you out of a fallen world. Your salvation teaches you how to manage your life in the midst of a fallen world. David is a man seeking after God. He didn't wait on blessing. He didn't live waiting on favor. He simply lived and he operated in his best ability what he had. He had a slingshot and some stones. He managed it. He wanted to get a wife. He managed it. 
He wanted to walk into whatever God wanted him to do, so he managed it. How did he manage it? He didn't say, God, one day you're going to make me king, so I'm just going to pray 24 hours, seven days a week. I'm going to worship you through my heart. I'm going to get in my closet, and I'm just going to play and worship. No, he didn't do that. He led battles for a king trying to kill him. He, he, he did great things for a man trying to take him out. And the more and more he served someone that had no passion to advance him, he was being advanced. But it wasn't because he was saying, God, advance me. He was simply being obedient. Because he realized I might be righteous and, and, and I might have been anointed to be king, but I'm not king right now. So even though I'm a king, I'm going to serve the current king. And even though they're trying to kill me and take me out and they're trying to take everything up from under me, I'm going to serve and I'm going to bring them the best glory and honor I can. Let's read it again. 1 Samuel 20. David now fled from Naoth Ramah and found Jonathan. What have I done? What is my crime? How have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me? That's not true, Jonathan protested. You're not going to die. He, he always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. And then David took an oath before Jonathan and said, Your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he has said to himself, I'm not going to tell Jonathan. Why should I hurt him? But I swear to you that I am only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by your own soul. David lays it out. He says, dude, your dad wants to kill me. And he's not going to say a word to you because he doesn't want to hurt. He doesn't want you to hurt his plot to take me out. And look at Jonathan's response to that. Verse 4. He says, tell me what I can do to help you. He didn't keep backing up his father. He didn't keep defending his father. Because in the previous chapter, he took an oath to David that he was going to back him and be with him. And when David said, trust me, he's trying to kill me, Jonathan said, what do I need to do? I wonder how was it in one sentence that Jonathan's loyalty left his belief in his father to a suggestion from David. Because David and Jonathan had a covenant together, a close friendship. What did Ecclesiastes say? You're not guaranteed anything. And you're not immune to tragedy. You're not immune to bad cards being dealt to you. So you better make sure that what you invest in is of value. Because when tragedy strikes, when bad stuff happens, the ones surrounding you are either going to stick or they're going to leave. And I wonder if it took an honest evaluation of the people who we surround ourselves with. Are they people who are going to be more loyal to us or more loyal to themselves? David seeking God, it attracted Jonathan to love David as himself. So I wonder if we start to look at our lives, are the things you are attached to a result of you being a seeker of God? Everything you, you are attached to should be a result of you seeking. But what happens is we build friendships and relationships, work relationships, based off of convenience, based off common interest. We build them based off musical tastes. We build relationships based off the of same skills. We build relationships based off of how it can benefit us. 
Your relationship should not be what you have in common. Your relationship should be built out of in my seeking who has God led me to invest in. Not who has God led me to get something out of. When we start to build relationships based off of what God has called us to invest in, they will see such favor on you that they will give honor to you whenever you need it because it's been a result of a seeking of God rather than a seeking of yourself. Building a relationship out of seeking yourself is simply, how is this going to make me feel better? Think about it. We, we get friends who are going to make us feel better when we have bad times, so we look at friends who have common interests of what we do when tragedy strikes. And we build friends who, well, when, when tragedy strikes, they go drink, so I want to have some friends that go drink when I need to go drink. That does not come from you seeking God. That comes from you seeking the way you deal with bad things. But when you start to seek God, a whole new avenue of people start to come into your life that you may not have nothing in common with, no musical taste with, no skill with, no, no personality, anything, but you start to be brought together because God knows that something's going to happen and there is something in that man or something in that woman who you have nothing in common with who's going to be there for you and is going to bring you through the tragedy that you cannot escape because you're righteous but not immune. So God says, I know your every need, so seek me and let me guide the people that you invest in. Because those are the relationships that are going to stick when life gets messy. Not because of common interests, but because they are attracted to the God in you that is glowing from your countenance because of your seeking. Some of the people that I trust the most, I don't have much in common with. The only thing we have in common is that we go to church together. We seek God together. I, I know without a doubt there's people in this church that I can trust. I, I know like if I need a Tyler or Justin Marie or Jonathan or Marty, or Taylor, or Pee Wee, or you know, Ryan. I, I can name all y'all because we're a, a close-knit. My mom, uh, don't, don't forget that one. Uh, <laughs> I know there's people in this church that as tragedy struck, I could call in a minute and you'd be there. But I don't know if we necessarily have a good time. You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be able to go to a gym and keep up with Tyler. I've tried it. It's really depressing. Tyler's lifting like 400 pounds, and I'm sitting here with five-pound dumbbell. You know, it's just, it's, just, it's just not very gratifying. Yeah, there's, there, there, there's, but that's what we try to build relationships. What, what do we have in common? Rather than are we seeking him together? And when we seek him together, it builds this foundation of security when tragedy comes that you're not immune from. This is where David's at. Jonathan has made a covenant with David. I have seen such favor of God on you from my seeking that I'm going to give you favor over my own father who is the king who could kill me with a snap of his fingers. And in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 20, David replied, Tomorrow we celebrate the new moon festival. I've always eaten with the king on this occasion, but tomorrow I'm going to hide in the field and I'm going to stay there until the evening of the third day. Jonathan, if your father asks where I am, tell him I ask permission to go home to Bethlehem for our annual family sacrifice. If he says, fine, you'll know all is well. But if your dad gets angry and loses his temper, you'll know he is determined to kill me. Show me this loyalty as my sworn friend 
for we made a solemn pact before the Lord. Or kill me yourself if I've sinned against your father. Please don't betray me to him. He makes a high demand on Jonathan. He says, trust me above your daddy. Show me loyalty as my friend for the covenant that you made above your father. Let's not forget the passage when Jesus says, are you willing to leave your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, and follow me? David simply is getting the, the same kind of decree. Are you, going to fo- are, are, are you going to trust me in this, or I'm asking you to keep this covenant with me that God has aligned us to be? Are you going to honor me above your father? Please don't betray me to him. Verse 9, never, Jonathan exclaimed, you know that if I had the slightest notion my father was planning to kill you, I'd tell you at once. So then they even asked, how will I know whether or not your father is angry? Well, come out to the field with me, Jonathan replied. And they went out together. And then Jonathan told David, I promise by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow or the next day at the latest, I will talk to my father and I'll let you know at once how he feels about you. If he speaks favorably about you, I'm going to let you know. But if he's angry and wants to kill you, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so that you can escape and live. In other words, he's saying, I will commit treason against the throne. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. You see what just happened there? Jonathan said, I recognize something on you that I used to see in my father. But I no longer see on him. What I see is the favor and love of God. And because I no longer see it on my father, I'm no longer going to be loyal to this demonic covering over him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to be in his court. I'm going to honor my father. But my loyalty is to the man that is seeking God. May you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, David, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David, saying, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Their relationship was all centered around their loyalty to God and then their loyalty to their call. David, although Saul tried to kill him multiple times, was proven as a faithful servant. And sometimes the most loyal people to you are the ones who you see faithful in the things that there's no benefit to them, and there's no benefit to you. It's really easy to be faithful to a job because it pays your check. But let's just be honest, it's hard to be faithful to things that don't really benefit you. We're more faithful to corrupt relationships that we get something out of than faithful to people who simply love us because we're children of God. Are y'all hearing this? We're not immune. So we've got to make sure we start surrounding ourselves with people who are just qualified by one thing. Not the same bands, not the same TV shows, not the same movies, just we love God. See, that's the kind of family we're trying to build at Relentless. Where we know without a shadow of that, no, without a shadow of a doubt, no matter what happens in our lives, we are with a culture, a family, a church. Who, no matter what happens, these people have my back. Like, can you imagine a day 
where we are such a close-knit body of believers that if God told us to leave our jobs, we would do it knowing that our family has got our backs and won't let us go homeless? And I'm not saying quitting your job because you're miserable. I'm saying if God legitimately calls you to leave. Because if, if I start getting texts this week saying I need you to pay my rent, like, no, I rebuke you. Like, leave me alone. Unless you really need it because I got your back. But can you imagine that day where we're so close-knit that there is no worry? Because we're in covenant with each other. The scripture says that we are the body of Christ. That we are connected. That we need each other. Well, this is how Jonathan and David are living. They needed each other more than Jonathan needed to stay faithful to his father because David had the favor of God. So then Jonathan said, verse 18, tomorrow we celebrate the new moon festival. You'll be missed when your place at the table is empty. The day after tomorrow toward evening, go to the place where you hid before and wait there by the stone pile. I will come out and I'll shoot three arrows to the side of the stone pile as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy to bring the arrows back. If you hear me say they're on this side, then you'll know as surely as the Lord lives that all is well and there's no trouble, that my daddy Saul does not want to kill you. But if I tell that kid go further because the arrows are still ahead of you, then it will mean that you need to get the heck out of Dodge. You need to leave immediately because the Lord is sending you away. And may the Lord make us keep our promises to each other, for he's witnessed them. Now, if you remember, Jonathan was a skilled archer. He gave his stuff to David. David was, Jonathan was not going to miss the target. So he had the ability, for some reason, in this crazy scheme, when David got into the courts, he befriended a man who would have the ability to give him the signal. Sometimes the people you build relationships with that have no benefit to you now will have more benefit to you later without you having an inkling of what it will be. But you're not centered around how will that benefit me. You're centered around they seek God, I seek God, let's get together, yeah, yeah, yeah. If y'all got that movie reference, you're saved. If you didn't, I'll pray for you. So that's where they're at. They throw, he throws the gauntlet. He says, I'm going to take care of you. If you think that you don't need anyone because you're so okay for yourself, like let, let me just tell you the truth. You cannot do life by yourself. If you're at a place where you think, I don't need anyone, you're in complete rebellion with God. Well, Kyle, what, what, what do you mean that I'm in complete rebellion with God because I don't think I need anyone? Because the very design of the people of God is that they are built to support each other and work together. If you think you don't need each other, you are completely out of what God has designed you to be. He says, I need you to be together. If you say, I don't need anyone, you're saying two things. One, I'm full of pride, and two, I think I'm immune because of my favor. Well, I got the favor of God. I have my Bible study. I pray to God. God's got my back. God may have favor on you and God may have called you righteous, but God does not call you immune. 
you're going to come up against so much battle. And he says, because it's the truth, I've got people waiting for you that you're only going to find in seeking me. Because if you seek yourself and become a lover of yourself, you're going to align with people who love themselves too and don't be surprised when they turn their back on you. David could have said when when Jonathan was trying to help him out, he said, dude, I can take down lions. I can take down your dad. He could have said, dude, I, if I've, I've escaped that spear he thrown at me a hundred billion times, I can escape his sword. He could have said, dude, I beat a nine-foot guy named Goliath. I can beat this. He could have said, I've defeated army and after army and after army. I, after army, I got this. But David never gave himself credit for those victories. He never uh, gave himself the, the, this, this outstanding, look what I can do. He simply realized something. Even though he had battle after battle after battle after victory after victory under his belt, God led him into a covenant with this man. And if this man is saying, hide even though I can defeat lions and giants with my bare hands, I'm going to listen to what this dude has to say. Sometimes the best advice doesn't look like what you think you're capable of. That's probably one of my biggest struggles. When tragedy strikes, when things come against me, I automatically look, what can I do and what can I get myself out of? And God's continually teaching me some of the best strategies lie in the relationship and covenant with someone else who doesn't look anything like you. That's where Jonathan and David are at. David's like, man, I'm a warrior. I'm I'm becoming a king. He didn't say, man, I got this. He said, okay, I'll go hide. In Romans 12, 17 to 19, it says, never pay back evil with more evil. You see, he could have killed Saul, but his call wasn't to repay his call was to serve. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you as honorable. Do things in such a way that no one can question your honor. Do all that you can do to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Lead that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Don't prostitute your righteousness for favor. Oh, I'm I'm the favored child of God. I got this. Don't ever be so bold to claim that as your back pocket edge to get ahead. Because God does not call us to boast and be prideful. He calls us to be humble to our call. Don't try to use it according to your benefit to promote you. Be humble to God's power and he will take you where you need to go. Notice it does not say, read verse 19 again, dear friends, don't take revenge, lead that to the righteous anger of God. Uh, the, the scriptures say, I will take revenge and I will pay them back, says the Lord. It does not say, I'll make sure you get even. But that's all our mindset is. You feel justified when you get even. God never says, I'm going to let you get even with what was done to you. He says, let me take care of this battle and be humble and do what you need to do. That's what David was doing. I imagine every time David was being tried to kill by being killed by Saul, David probably had a conversation like, hey, can you take care of this? And God's like, let me take care of Saul. You just serve him. 
And in 1 Samuel 20, verse 24, we get to this place where David, it says, so David hid himself in the field. Is this boring? Okay. David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon festival began, the king sat down to eat. He sat at his usual place against the wall, with Jonathan sitting opposite him and Abner beside him, but David's place was empty. David didn't get prideful and say, I can sit at the table. No, he listened to Jonathan. Saul didn't say anything about that day, for he said to himself, well, something must have made David ceremonial and unclean. Because remember, Saul doesn't question David's honor. He just gets threatened by him. He knows that David's a, a straight-up dude. He never questions that. So you know, oh, there must be a reason David's not here. But when David's place was empty again, verse 27, the next day Saul asked Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse been here for the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan replied, well, David earnestly asked me if he could go to Bethlehem, Dad. He said, please let me go for we're having a family sacrifice. And my brother demanded that I be there, so please let me get away to see my brothers. And that's why he's not here at the king's table. Saul boiled with rage at his son, Jonathan. You stupid son of a whore. Look, look in a second, his father cursed him. Thank God Jonathan's favor was not to his father who had lost favor. His honor was to the man, David, who was seeking God. Now, he was honoring his father. But in a moment, his father turned on him. Can I just be honest? I know a lot of times people live a life where they're seeking God and their parents may not. The more and more you seek God, don't be surprised if they turn their back on you too because you're not, you're not immune. And that's not the time to yell at them for being bad parents. You honor your father and mother. It doesn't say honor your father and mother if they do good. It says honor them, period. So Jonathan's honoring them. He's sitting at the table. I'm getting close. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. He said, you stupid son of a whore. Do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother? As long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him, but why should he be put to death, Jonathan asked his father. What has he done? And then Saul hurled his spear at his own son, intending to kill him. So at last Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. Righteous, not immune. Jonathan was a prince. Jonathan had favor. Jonathan was in right standing. Jonathan was royalty. But even he was not immune to his father trying to kill him. You are righteous. The Bible says that you are royal sons and daughters of the king of the world but you are not immune. And just because you have the robes of righteousness on you and you're covered in the blood of the Lamb does not mean that you're going to get to live a life where tragedy doesn't strike and you get treated unfairly. But your seeking of God will determine how you respond and who you surround yourself with to be when the tragedy strikes. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, 
looking for someone to devour. You're not immune from that. And it's not just looking out for yourself, but looking out for what he's trying to do to others so that you can speak into their lives. Because the devil roaring around like a lion, he's preying on others. And in your seeking, you may have the word for them, but then we get into this, well, that's not my business. Well, it is if you're seeking God. Because if you're seeking God, if that's all you're obsessed with, if your attention is drawn to their business, you have a word that is meant for them to hear. The problem is we get up in other people's business because we do it without seeking the Lord. We do it to seek benefit of ourselves, and I'm going to stand for my rights, and I'm going to stand for this. No, you, you, the only right you have is to be a son or daughter of God and seek him, and he will lead you. So in verse 34, 1 Samuel 20, it says, Jonathan left the table in fierce anger. He refused to eat on that second day of the festival, for he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior toward David. Pay attention to that. I know I'm going a little long tonight, but I think this is just, this is just too good to rush. Look at that. He says, throw that verse up there, Josh, verse 34. Jonathan left the table in anger and refused to eat. He was crushed by his father trying to kill him. No. It, he, he wasn't crushed by his father trying to kill him. He was crushed by the fact that his father was trying to kill his friend David. Romans 12.10 says this, be devoted to tenderly loving your fellow believers as members of one family. Try to outdo yourselves in respect and honor of one another. He had such respect and honor for David that he cared more about David's life than his own. And what offended him was not the murder attempt on himself, but the murder attempt on his friend. And if we're going to be a church that represents God correctly, we should be consumed with outdoing each other with honor and respect. Outdoing. Looking for every chance to just give ridiculous honor. I had such a good fruit develop over the course of this building project. I, I, I would sometimes, out, well, either my own pocket or my mom throwing some money in there sometimes, I would buy those guys lunch all the time. Last week, we had another thing we had to paint, and I was like, man, this is a lot. And one of the dudes comes up to me. He says, hey, man, you bought me lunch like 20 times. I got this for free. I never did it to get free work. I just did it to honor him above what he deserved. And the fruit was me not having to go into another financial bond. Where, what, where have we lost the outdoing of love and respect for each other? Like, when we end the service tonight, like, I, I encourage you to outdo each other with love and respect. Send a text or make a call that you really don't want to make because you're more obsessed not with what makes you comfortable, but how can I outdo them with love and respect? How can I bless them beyond what they need to be blessed with? I mean, if we can get really real, the church loves to bless the poor, but we hate blessing the rich. We don't like to bless people who have. I, I, I kind of get like that sometimes because I, I drive a golf cart an hour and a half a day at Southbridge Community, and I pick up trash with a little picker. I just get a little extra cash on the side. And for a while, I thought to myself, this is pathetic. These rich sons of... 
you're throwing their beer cans out the, 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 the car into the grass. And then one day, like, this dude in this beautiful car stops. He says, hey, man, thank you for picking up our trash. And my whole thing shifted because in that moment, they didn't see some, some petty dude pick, like just, just picking up trash. They saw something that they respected enough to stop what they were doing and just say thank you. If we would start to get that mindset about doing each other, you realize how many people would start to see the light in darkness? That's all that's going on here in the story. Jonathan had such a love and respect for David that he said, I'm, I'm not offended that I'm being killed here. I, I'm offended that you, this man who seeks God, is trying to be taken out. <laughs> the next morning, verse 35, as agreed, Jonathan went out into the field and took a young boy with him to gather his arrows. Start running, he told the boy, so you can find the arrows as I shoot them. So the boy ran, Jonathan shot the arrow beyond him. And when the boy had almost reached the arrow, Jonathan shouted, the arrow is still ahead of you. Hurry, hurry, don't wait. So the boy quickly gathered the arrows, ran back to his master. He, of course, suspected nothing. Only Jonathan and David understood the signal. And then Jonathan gave his bow and his arrows to the boy, told him to take them back to the town. As soon as the boy was gone, David came out from where he had been hiding near the stone pile. And then David bowed three times to Jonathan. Now look at that. David's the future king, bowing to Jonathan. Because Jonathan proved faithful in the covenant. He bowed to Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Complete humility. David never had this, I told you. He didn't have this, see, your father's horrible. He outdid Jonathan with honor and respect. Both of them were in tears. They embraced each other. They said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, or we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. And then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. Just because you have the best motive, just because you have a close relationship with God, does not mean that you're immune to others seeing themselves as our enemy. And no matter how much favor you have with God, you are not immune. Being right with God doesn't make you immune to unfair practice. Being right with God gives you the wisdom to respond God-like. Because you care more about God's glory rather than your own. David even wrote this in one of the Psalms 34 in verse 19. David wrote, the righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to rescue each time. The Lord protects the bones of the righteous not one of them is broken your flesh may get cut battered bruised but what sustains you will always be protected the question is are you being sustained by the best sustainer there is because you're not immune to attack you're not immune to tragedy. David had this mindset, no matter how many times he tries to kill me, I'm serving my God. And my God has not told me to murder that man. So because God's going to take care of my structure and my bones and who I am, 
I don't care how many spears I have to dodge. I'm going to serve that man. And because of serving over and over and over, we come to the place where God finally gives David the okay. It's time to go. Your time to go is not in your hands. It comes from the seeking of God. He'll tell you when. But you don't make that decision out of fear for your life. Because he takes care of everything you are and he's not going to let you be hurt to that degree. Yeah, you're going to get scarred, you're going to get bruised, you're going to get battered. But he says, I'll take care of the bones. I'm going to close with this. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that the help, they know that they, we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. Character strengthens our confidence, hope of salvation. This hope will not lead to disappointment. We know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You're not immune from trials. You're not immune from problems. But you are in right standing. And instead of living under those as punishment, God can work for your good to develop endurance, character, and confidence. But it all starts with relationship. Talking to him every day. Seeking him in every decision. And at some point, the relationships you surround yourself with should be more consumed with him than taste. Common interests are not going to help you. We're in a war. We're in a battle. We are in a place where it's tough. What's going to help you is surrounding yourself with people who love God, who want to see you move forward. Loving your neighbor as yourself, investing in them to see the glory of God reign above the glory of self. Amen. You're righteous, but you're not immune. God has people meant to be in your corner. But the only way to find them is not through what you know. It's through the seeking of Him.